Fired Up show starts right now. And hey, welcome everybody. Welcome to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I host the show each week as we talk about politics and a host of other topics and uh, get into the mechanics of what uh, is making this country tick, positive or negative. And I got a got a pretty good show lined up today. Uh, we're going to start it off, as always, with our COVID uh, recap. Uh, we're currently at uh, 77.7 million cases that have been reported. Uh, 919,300 people uh, have died from the disease. Uh, we are, are closing in on a million deaths, which will be kind of a uh, interesting and tragic milestone, and, and we'll talk about that on the show when we get there. But, you know, it's it's 919,000 deaths too many. Um, 543 and a half million people have received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine with more than uh, 68% uh, getting you know a single dose and 57% uh, having gotten uh, a full dose or fully vaccinated. Uh, the numbers on the vaccinations uh, are going up slowly, but the important number is that the rate of hospitalization and the rate of death from COVID uh, it continues to decrease. That's the good positive sign that we want to keep a hold of. Uh, it, it speaks to the fact that we are getting better at having this uh, disease a little more under control and you know under better management. So we'll keep we'll keep pulling the numbers out and we'll keep you posted on news and developments in the COVID front. So of course, if you've been following the news at all over the past uh, couple of months. Uh, the discussion is focused more and more on what looks like an impending invasion of Ukraine by uh, Russian military forces. Uh, the tension seems to keep getting ratcheted up in that scenario with now with U.S. officials having uh, instructed American citizens in the Ukraine uh, to leave by whatever available means they can. Uh, in the shortest possible time frame, because it seems clear that uh, you know at, at just about any moment or any day, um, this could turn into a shooting situation uh, in Ukraine, uh, putting you know obviously many many civilians at risk and possibly dragging other countries uh, into the conflict and so forth. So. You know, it this has sort of overshadowed much of what's been going on, uh, you know, here in the United States in terms of politics. There's been much discussion on what the U.S. response to a Russian invasion of Ukraine would be. And President Biden has made it clear that uh, although military options um, are not 100 percent out of the question, they are definitely not the path that the uh, administration uh, is looking to go uh, in in sense of this 
You know, after all, if you think about it, we just got out of a 20 year war in Afghanistan and we're not about to pivot and go back into the region uh, and, you know, and face down with Vladimir Putin. However, there are a number of other very powerful uh, responses that the U.S. and our allies are uh, letting Russia know that will happen should they decide to uh, cross the border and invade Ukraine. Um, Russia has a very fragile uh, economy. Uh, it's dependent on a number of things. It's dependent on you know, the flow of natural gas to other countries, for one thing, and uh, countries have stated that they will moratorium that, uh, that process and those purchases, which puts a huge economic burden on uh, the Russian economy. Uh, there are other sanctions, and you know some are state-based. That is, they are uh, assets and interests of the Russian state, and others are you know targeted toward uh, Putin, the individual, and the oligarchs, and so forth, and really look at uh, in, imposing a crippling sanction system on the leadership of. Uh, the Russian country. So we will, of course, keep an eye on it. Uh, we hope that cooler heads will prevail and that somehow, some way, Vladimir Putin can be uh, convinced that it is in his, as well as his country's, best interest to dial the heat down, to ratchet down the tensions uh, in Ukraine. We'll keep posted and we'll let you know. On the other side of the world, uh, the uh, Winter Olympics uh, are underway in China. Uh, the athletes are competing in you know, mostly empty venues as China has uh, locked down the Olympic venue uh, due to COVID. But that still doesn't you know, preclude us being able to watch you know, the, the elite athletes of the world in winter sports uh, competing and you know the the U.S. after a slow start is starting to move up in the medal counts. Um, you know and uh, it it's again uh, it's a good quote diversion close quote from some of the more serious things going on like the the Ukraine situation I just mentioned. Um, and you know it's also just it it's heartwarming to see these athletes who have worked you know all their lives to get to you know this this pinnacle of sports you know in the world uh, and just I'm happy that they get the opportunity to compete uh, it would be better and you know a lot more exciting and energetic if there were crowds there cheering them on but the most important thing is that the competitions uh, are in fact going on so uh, we send our, our wishes for good luck to the American Olympic team. Uh, keep going, guys. Regardless of, of how many people are there watching, we're all behind you uh, here in the U.S. All right, let's move uh, back into more political news, closer to home and uh, really kind of the, the focus of what our show is about. Um, let's go back down to one of my favorite political locations. My goodness, I think I have been talking about uh, issues in the state of Florida literally from day one of doing this show, and it just never stops. Um, 
Thank you, Governor DeSantis, for always giving me something else to add to the show each week. Most recently, uh, Governor DeSantis uh, has uh, filed a suit in uh, the Florida Supreme Court uh, looking to uh, answer a question regarding whether one of the newly drawn districts uh, is unconstitutional. And oh, did I mention that the uh, congressman whose district it is just happens to be black? If, I don't know if I mentioned that or not, just, just bringing that up. Um, saying the, the court refused to uh, hear his request uh, or to consider his request saying that it was just too complicated to answer within what is called the advisory opinion uh, structure of the state Supreme Court. Uh, Governor DeSantis, once again, has, has placed himself into the 10-year uh, process of drawing new congressional maps, uh, which is something that's very, very unusual for a governor to do. Um, you know, the House and Senate, according to, and this is according to an article that came out of the Associated Press uh, a week ago, Thursday, and the House and Senate considered maps that largely left Democratic U.S. Rep. Al Lawson's district intact. But Governor DeSantis, uh, his proposal would uh, make the district lean more Republican. So uh, what transpired was after submitting his map, DeSantis asked the Supreme Court in Florida if Lawson's district is unconstitutional. Uh, this district, and if you've ever looked at some of the gerrymandered districts that state legislatures come up with around the country, you'll, you'll get a sense of what I'm, what I'm talking about here. The district runs from Jacksonville to Gadsden County, west of Tallahassee. Uh, it's about 200 miles long. Uh, DeSantis questioned whether drawing it to contain black communities so far apart met the state, federal, uh, the, I'm sorry, met the state and federal constitutional requirements. Uh, the court replied back that the scope of the governor's request is broad and contains multiple questions that implicate complex federal and state constitutional matters and precedents interpreting the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the court wrote. Now, surprisingly, and, and it's, it's weird that I have to say that, the governor's office accepted the opinion gracefully. Uh, while we were hopeful, in quoting the a spokesman for the governor's office, uh, while we were hopeful the Supreme Court would provide clarity to legal questions surrounding the maps that are under consideration, we agree with the court's opinion that there are important issues that must be addressed quickly. Uh, and this came from Governor DeSantis' spokeswoman, Taryn Fenske, uh, said in an email response. So, you know, it's, it's clear that, you know, DeSantis is continuing uh, the, the undertakings of the Republican Party to shave down the Democratic, the, the Democrat Party footprint uh, in, you know, congressional districts across the country. Uh, but at least in this case, um, logic and understanding and, you know, uh, 
uh, uh, facts one out the day. You know, according to what um, Representative Lawson said, and I quote, Ron DeSantis lost today, but more importantly, the Constitution won, close quote. Uh, Lawson said DeSantis' decision to release his maps on the eve of the Martin Luther King holiday and ask the Supreme Court about the constitutionality of his district on the first day of Black History Month was insensitive. You know, uh, Lawson goes on to say he overstepped his bounds. I hope that he regroups and realizes that he was wrong uh, for these last two and a half weeks of Black History Month that he lets African-Americans know how much he appreciates their contribution of what they've done in the state of Florida. So, you know, there, there's, there's action, there's consequences, and then there's timing. All three of these seem to have worked against Governor DeSantis in this case uh, and toward uh, the, the better outcome of, you know, standing up the district as it's drawn and, you know, keeping that seat uh, where it, it has been for, you know, several terms now. So it, it also, but realistically, when you take a step back and look at some of the actions and things that, uh, you know, particularly Republicans, but not exclusively as Democrats in, in areas of the country that they control are doing the same thing. And, and I've reported on this, you know, many times over the years. Um, the, the idea of, you know, throwing the greater good or, or throwing acting for the greater good out the window and going with, you know, more self-serving or party-serving or, uh, you know, political-leaning-serving actions just seems to be something that uh, we see more and more every day, every week, every month uh, in this country. Uh, that segues us into something that I wanted to, to talk about for this show is, and I don't know if it's just me, I don't think that it's just me because I hear the same opinions voiced uh, around the various news media sources that I follow. But our country seems to be, uh, you know, breaking up, busting up at the seams, fragmenting, you know, into a bajillion pieces. Uh, the more and more we suffer through these partisan battles and, and skirmishes and conflicts and disagreements uh, that we've been going through. Uh, if you look at the headlines, you know, as you, you surf media sources on, on, on all sides of the, the spectrum, uh, you don't see as many stories of, you know, political and social substance as you see stories of character assassinations, uh, throwing people under the bus, whether they're in your party or not, uh, all of these elements of, you know, kind of the, the, the schoolyard fighting that you know, our political system has uh, seemingly degenerated into. Uh, it, it makes it, number one, very difficult, very tedious 
to to stay informed and to stay aware of what's going on politically in this country because uh, you you keep have to wading through all of the and I'm going to say it you know in, in this fashion all of the juvenile emotional outbursts that you have to deal with uh, whether it's you know from particular members of the House of Representatives who happen to be Republican uh, or you know Democratic, uh, or Democrat leaders who are are crying, you know, in their in their soup over you know a, a new uh, affront or insult that has been thrown out in the media, and you know then you you look and see that the media is actually driving a lot of this controversy uh, by providing the venue for these feeding frenzies of emotional insecurity that we see happening over and over and over again. For those of you out there who, um, you know, are of the younger generations, millennials, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, whatever, uh, you haven't had the opportunity in real time to experience the more uh, civil side of uh, political discourse um, you know, you, you haven't looked at, you know, things like, and have seen it, it play out, uh, in, you know, in the media, in real time, uh, you know, the, like the relationship between Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Now, of course, Ronald Reagan, former president, uh, Thomas P. O'Neill or Tip O'Neill was the speaker of the house during, uh, Reagan's presidency. Reagan was, of course, was a Republican. O'Neill, of course, was a Democrat. And, you know, you would you would think, especially if you looked at it through the lens of, you know, today's Republican Democrat, uh, you know, disagreement or, you know, viewpoints of each other, that there's no way that these two would, you know, get along or whatever. What you find, and, and if you go in and, and dig into the history of these two, is that they were, in fact, um, you know, very close together and, you know, actually uh, friends from a standpoint of being respectful for their, their positions uh, regarding issues. Um, it, it's been widely reported that... Uh, Tip O'Neill would, at the end of the day, after the legislative session was over, would uh, use the, the tunnel system or, or whatever and you know, go over to the White House and sit down with President Reagan and have a beer, you know, and, and you know, watch, you know, maybe watch sports on TV or whatever. But we don't see that kind of thing happening in the public eyesight. Uh, at all these days, um, if if you turned on you know your news station of choice, whether it would be you know CNN, Fox, Newsmax, whatever, and you saw um, you know uh, Senate uh, Congressman uh, McConnell or Senator McConnell rather uh, sitting at a bar with Joe Biden having a beer and laughing like a couple of college buddies you'd think you flipped off the planet and gone into the twilight zone. Um, but there was a lot 
you know, in, in the back in the days, there were a lot of legislative efforts that were actually hammered out outside of the formal uh, halls of, of government, you know, and we don't see that anymore. Um, not saying that it doesn't happen. It's just that it is likely nowhere near the level that it was, you know, in the, the 70s and 80s and, and, and 90s, um, where politicians realized that sometimes the best negotiations are handled outside of the public realm and that, you know, it, it, it can be productive to sit down in, in a more social situation and, you know, resolve your differences than just sit on either side of a social media platform and fire shots back and forth at each other. Uh, you know, it, it's partly, uh, I would guess, it is partly a, a sign of the times that we now live in. The fact that uh, social media, internet, and all of these connected elements are now the, the fabric on which, you know, much congressional and, and governmental leadership work is done rather than, you know, uh, person to person, you know, sitting back with a brandy and a cigar and, and discussing your points of view and finding that common ground. Um, you know, we are much more binary now in terms of it, you're either red or blue, you're either R or D, um, and less so much that we're all elected officials brought to this location to work on behalf of the people and to put the people's business ahead of our own egos and, and you know, all of that uh, stuff. So I, I say that to say, you know, I, I long in many ways for the good old days. I think we truly got some of the landmark uh, pieces of legislation done, you know, whether it was um, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, such as it stands, or voting rights, or, you know, any, any of the other landmark pieces of legislation. A lot of what went into getting those done uh, in the, back in the day was done out of the spotlight of public and media attention. So uh, I kind of wish we could get back to that in a more effective way. Um, so uh, anyway, let's move on to uh, another story that came across my radar this week. Uh, and this comes out from a CNN poll that was conducted. And what they did was they went out and asked Democrats and Republicans uh, who they who they favor to be their nominee for president in, you know, 2024. And maybe surprisingly, maybe not, a significant number of both Democrats and Republicans, and this is according to the, the article on the poll uh, in CNN.com, uh, a significant number of both Democrats and Republicans currently hope to see their parties find alternatives to President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump in the next presidential election. And this was conducted, according to a poll CNN conducted, 
uh, within the past uh, two months. The survey um, conducted in January and February found that 45% of Democratic uh, and Democratic-leaning voters wanted to see the party renominate uh, President Biden in 2024, while 51% preferred a different candidate. There's more support in the party for Biden among voters 45 and older, uh, 52% of whom want to see him as the nominee again. Uh, voters of color at 55% and voters without a college degree at 51%. There's also a gap between the 48% of self-identified Democrats who want to see Biden renominated uh, and the third of Democratic-leaning independents who felt the same. Uh, the 2024 support for Biden is concentrated among this, his most ardent backers in the party, while 70% of Democratic voters who strongly approve of the way he's handling the job said they'd like to see him renominated, and that drops just to 35% among Democrats who said they approve moderately. Now, on the other side of the aisle, Republican and Republican-leaning voters are about evenly split uh, between wanting their, par their party to nominate Donald Trump again, and that's at 50%, or wanting a different candidate, and it's at 49%. A majority of Republicans, 54%, favored Trump, compared with 38% of Republicans leaning, uh, I'm sorry, Republican-leaning independents. Continued support for the former president within the GOP is also particularly strong among white voters without a college degree, and they're at 60%, and those who falsely claim Biden's 2020 victory was illegitimate, and they're at 64%. So to, to dive into that for a minute, basically what this is telling us is that uh, a, a bare or thin majority of uh, voters want to see uh, President Biden renominated, and a, a slim majority of Republican voters uh, don't want to see Donald Trump renominated. So, you know, it, it looks like we're lining up for an, an interesting showdown uh, between the, the, the likely uh, presidential front runners. You know, that would be President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. Uh, should he decide or if he could uh, run for uh, the presidency again? Um, and, and there are some other articles related to this that I saw, but I wanted to bring this one up because it gave numbers. But there is a, a significant uh, portion of the Republican Party who you know, clearly don't want to see Trump um, nominated, who do not support him, who are looking for other alternative candidates uh, and, and actively seeking ways to find somebody else to put on the Republican uh, or, or be the Republican standard bearer. Now, if we, if we contrast this, if we go back to, uh, you know, 2010, uh, and, and look at the numbers for you know, former President Obama uh, and 
you know, 2018, look at the numbers for uh, President Trump in his reelection bid. Uh, it, it, you find interestingly that uh, nearly 80% of Democrat and Democrat leaning voters said they wanted the party to renominate Barack Obama uh, for a second term. And uh, in March 2018, Republican and Republican leaning voters were solidly behind Donald Trump's renomination, and that was at 77%. So, you know, the, the poll suggests that, you know, the, re the resistance over both Biden and Trump stems more from electability and other concerns because their partisans don't want them to be president. Uh, and, and I find that very interesting, not surprising, but, but somewhat interesting uh, as a concept. And, you know, in, in, in going behind the curtain on this, we find that this is just the latest uh, outcome from the brand of popularity-based politics that this country has been practicing for probably the last, uh, you know, 40 or 50 years. We are, are less and less inclined to elect uh, a candidate to office, uh, perhaps I should qualify to say to national public office, uh, then you know, based on their abilities, you know, um, their their education, their their avocation, their what their background is, and so forth, and more on on just the simple question of who do we like more? Um, you know, this was evident in the election uh, between, you know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And, you know, it, it was clear that those that, that voted for Trump uh, in that election were both you know, Republican Party supporters and Hillary Clinton uh, haters, for lack of a better term, uh, who just couldn't bring themselves to vote for her, so they voted for Trump instead. Uh, or they didn't vote at all, which was just as bad. So, you know, we have, we have come to the, the position, and again, I caveat this to saying this seems more evident in national elections than it does in state and local elections, where, of course, the distance uh, or, or the altitude of the candidate uh, above the, the voting public is a lot lower uh, and, and candidates are more well-known in their, their local areas. Um, so it, it is clear that, you know, as I said, we are electing people based on how much we, quote, like them, close quote, rather than, you know, how, how much we perceive they are qualified for their position. Now, from from my experience in observing local elections here where I live, and you know, it, it is it is clear that there is a significant amount of that popularism uh, driving voting choices as well. Uh, but it is also clear that you know it, it is likely that the candidates at local elections are more more known locally. Their background you know, where they come from and so forth uh, because they come from our neighborhoods. 
you know, the the individual who may be running for, uh, you know, county sheriff lives in the county. You know, he he's known to people, the individuals running for judgeships or running for city council. Uh, they're they're not national level people. They're people that live you know, down the street and around the corner. They're people you see in the in the local supermarket uh, on the weekends buying groceries or dropping their kids off at school. So, you know, it, it is clear that above a certain level in the political spectrum, uh, you know, that distance translates into more of a decision based on how they look, uh, how they sound, uh, what, you know, what they bring to the table from a relate, relatability perspective rather than a competency perspective. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's just the shift as you elevate up from, you know, local to state to national. Uh, and, and as I said, we've seen this in, in increasing uh, proportions over the last 30 years or so. So how do we combat that becomes the question. So as, as always on here on Fired Up, we look for our, our calls to action. And I think clearly our, our number one call to action that we repeat you know, show after show is we as the voting public, we as the constituents, we need to make sure that we are invested in the knowledge of who our elected officials are, what they stand for, um, not just you know how well they dress, how well we like them, and how good they look on television, but you know what are their capabilities and qualifications? What is their history with regard to the issues that they are talking about? You know, are they uh, bringing you know levels of competency to what they're going to be doing? Should we elect them to office uh, that we can visibly see and verify? You know, if if it's just that, you know, candidate A looks better in a suit than candidate B or, you know, whatever, then we as the constituents need to be rethinking our voting choices. We need to be making sure that we're having the conversations, that we have done the research and looking into their backgrounds, uh, looking into their history finding out why is it they want to run for that particular office and what do they bring to the table from a skills set, not just, you know, how, how well they speak, how well-spoken they are. Um, you know, it, it, it's important that we do that diligence and dig into it. Now, you know, to, to, to step away from that for a second and acknowledge that you know this program and and the platform WJMS Media, uh, you know, is also heard in other parts of the world. Um, you know, shout out to Fraser Ramsey and Mintwave Radio who carry our program on on their platform as well, uh, being broadcast out of uh, England. And you know, it it's interesting in that the the amount of time, you know, and, and I've looked at what's going on, particularly in English politics, uh, again, since our relationship with Mintway Radio. Um, and I see how, you know, the, the British political system 
seems to be, and and Frazier, if you're listening and you want to send an email to the program and, and make any clarifications or observations, I welcome it, um, seems to be that it, it, it looks like it is starting to slip more and more into a similar model to what we find here in the U.S. Uh, with, you know, popularity and likability uh, taking a, a, a larger and larger role rather than just ability. And, you know, I, I don't want to pick on any anyone over there in particular, but you don't have to go far to kind of guess where I'm looking and, and what I'm thinking. Um, you know, it, it's, it's clear that certain leaders, uh, you know, over there resemble some leaders over here. Uh, it, it is clear, for example, if you look at what is changed, uh, if we take Germany, for example, in the post-Angela Merkel uh, era, Germany is starting to sound like a slightly different country. You know, and, and that goes that goes without saying. You know, whenever you have a change in leadership, the the tone and tenor is going to change with it. Um, you know, it it's clear that America does not have the entire franchise on you know uh, wacky you know one dimensional crazy leadership. Lord knows, we, we just came off of um, one of the poster children for wacky, crazy leadership, and we're still dealing with that. I'm going to talk a little bit about that before we close the show. Um, so, you know, what does that say? It's that, you know, while all politics may be local politics, there is a global common thread that seems to run through political processes in many different countries around the world that is leading to some of the trials and tribulations that we see every day uh, in our in our newscast. So, you know, it, it's it's clear we've got some work to do, uh, you know, and whether you're here in the U.S. or in the U.K. or, you know, uh, the European Union uh, or, or anywhere, you know, you've got to, to do your diligence and stay informed, uh, stay researching, stay chasing after the facts, uh, multiple source your your news and and do all of the the things that we talk about here on this show each week. So, you know, just just a thought on on that. Now, a, as I said, I wanted to. Um, so. As I mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, I wanted to devote some time and, and kind of talk about the wacky, crazy, unbelievable things that we have we have seen coming um, out of Washington, D.C., and in, in particular, Mar-a-Lago and some other places, um, and really just kind of dive into a, a question that this has put into my mind and that I can't seem to get out of my mind. And the question quite simply is this, what, what the hell has happened to us, America? Um, you know, we, we've got a situation here where, you know, and, and what I'm speaking about is the current 
struggle, the current battle going on between former President Trump and the Department of Justice. And, you know, I want to talk about boxes of papers being removed from the White House that quite possibly are against federal law. I want to talk about papers being jammed down into the toilets at the at the White House. I, you know, I want to talk about all of these crazy things, you know, uh, you know, the eating of documents in order to get rid of them and so forth. And, you know, not just from the standpoint of violation of the the Federal Records Act or the Presidential Records Act or, or whatever, but just from the standpoint of how did we get here and why are we still here? You know, what, what do we need to do in order to change how this country looks to itself and how it looks to the rest of the world? Because I got to tell you, you know, it, it, it's not only crazy and funny and wacky, it's also, and in, in, in all seriousness, it is very infuriating that the, the same justice department or justice mechanisms that shot and killed, you know, a, a, young, a young man uh, because he stole a book bag let someone with, you know, a that that came out of a higher office politically leave and violate two at least two counts of federal laws, uh, not not including, you know, shredding and destroying government documents. Uh, and he's still, you know, walking around scot free. Uh, you know, we have situation where the, the, you know, we, we talk about the double standards of the American uh, legal system. We have a woman, uh, a black woman in Georgia, I believe it was, who, or, or it may have been Texas, who uh, filled out a ballot incorrectly and you know, proceeded to, to submit that ballot, was arrested and sentenced to a, a uh, sentence of six years. Uh, and yet in California, we have at least four gentlemen who didn't just mistakenly complete the, the ballot application. These guys actually filed ballots for uh, relatives who were deceased and they got caught uh, and they got, you know, probation and a couple of dozen hours of community service. Compare and contrast with the woman on the other side of the country who got six years. All right. Compare and contrast a, you know, the former president walks out of the White House with, you know, some 15 boxes or so of federal documents, you know, against at least, as I said, two standing federal regulations, um, as well as, you know, destroying and shredding uh, notes and documents, which is also a federal crime. And he's kicking it, you know, down in, in Florida like it's another day in, in the sunshine. You know, we have this double standard. We know we have this double standard. 
our political leadership knows we have this double standard and it you know it just goes on and on and on and on and on all of these laws that apply unequally depending upon who you are where you are uh, how much you have in the bank and what what color your skin is we have this you know this dichotomy of of justice this you know justice depends on as i said the who the what the where and the the you know the how you spend your money and you know nothing seems to get done about it at the end of the day folks nothing seems to get done about it because we let nothing get done about it all right the you know we we need to be more like the title of this show we need to be fired up about politics 24 hours a day seven days a week 365.25 days a year every year we shouldn't be waiting for midterm elections or presidential elections or county elections or state elections we should be having conversations with our elected officials daily they should be getting an email from us every day saying you know what are you doing about this problem i sent you a question about this last week and i still have not received an answer back i sent you know a a picture of this bridge that looks like it is going to fall and lo and behold hello pittsburgh the bridge falls and you know it, everybody at the government level you know I'm not saying the state and local people. I'm pretty sure they knew that bridge was in serious trouble. But I'm saying the the people at the federal level that control purse strings, that get money allocated to the state to fix a bridge and, you know, work with the state to put, to put out the contracts that get the contractors there and the materials there to to repair or rebuild that bridge. They have the audacity to stand up there and look surprised. At a at a forty forty something year old bridge uh, that is is rusted through in some places, and this is just one bridge. I mean, I in in my travels, you know, both for work and and otherwise, I see all kinds of bridges that look sketchy, and I'm pretty sure as as you drive around in your daily lives, you see a lot of things with infrastructure that look sketchy. And they're not getting addressed. They're getting tied up in all of these partisan bickering conversations. Uh, they're getting, uh, you know, parliamentary uh, procedure into standing still rather than having our elected officials, regardless of party, realize that this stuff needs to get fixed. You know, thank God no one died in that bridge collapse uh, in western Pennsylvania a couple of weeks ago. All right. However, you know, the the condo building in Florida that collapsed in the middle of the night, there had been inspections done on that building that said that there were areas of that building that were compromised and nothing got done. The problem is we, the people, we're not holding our officials accountable enough we need to stop 
just saying, you know, you need to do something about this. We need to complete that sentence. That sentence needs to read, you need to do something to address this issue. And if you don't, the next election, I'm voting someone else in. So you've got between now and then to get this job done. That is the level of conversation that we need to have with our elected leaders because we have the capability to do that. One of the things, you know, not, not to jump back and forth, but, you know, I've, I've watched from time to time something on um, public television. And it is called the, and, and, you know, Mint Wave, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It is called, I believe, the Prime Minister's Comments. And that is that periodically, and it, it might be, I don't know if it's every week or every couple of weeks or once a month, the Prime Minister of England goes into Parliament and answers questions from the ministers, from the elected officials. And, you know, it, it's, it's not lofty politics stuff. They're asking about getting, you know, a toll gate fixed on, you know, some road in, in a, you know, somewhere up in north, oh my God, where am I, England? Uh, and the prime minister has to address that. He makes notes, he promises actions, and they follow up. And I can't help but think when I watch that. And I, I encourage you, you know, especially you younger listeners out there, Track that show down. I believe it is called the Prime Minister's Comments, but it's it's it'll be carried on your your PBS station. I don't know what day of the week it is, but but find it and watch it, and then take a minute and think about what if the President of the United States went into a joint session of Congress and had a Q and A with the senators and Congress people, open no holes barred, straight questions coming from the, the elected officials to the head of state, and he or she uh, has to answer them. What would that look like for, for us? You know, could we do it? You know, questions that we need to, to be um, looking at and just like going, hmm, you know, it might not work. You know, it, it might not be something that we can do, but it is something that we should at least consider. You know, and, and okay, call me weird, call me crazy. But I, I think, you know, I, I, would, I would have loved to see, you know, former President Trump, former President Obama, you know, President Clinton, President Reagan, you know, have to show up in front of the, the congressional elected officials on C-SPAN in real time, broadcast to the nation, ask and answer questions, you know, as to why this is done. What do we need to do about that? And, you know, it'd be interesting. I don't know. Like I said, call me crazy. But that's, that's kind of where we are, are slipping away in accountability and responsibility seem to be something that we see less and less of um, as
as you know the the years go by uh and and it's not uh, it's not a republican thing it's not a democrat thing uh you know we we've had conversations and we'll 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 tie it up with this there's an another conversation that seems to be started and one one gets launched you know pretty much every year uh but uh a congressman and i i don't recall off the top of my head who it is but i will look into it i will post it uh on my um on my facebook page for the show fired up radio at facebook.com uh a congressman has proposed uh to set a 12 year term limit for senate and house so that's two year two terms for a senator six terms for a congressman but either both of them add up to a 12 year total term in the house or in the senate combine that with the discussions that have been held about establishing some form of term limit for the Supreme Court. Now, you know, these are ideas, like I said, this is not the first time these ideas have been brought up. They're brought up, you know, pretty much every year, or at least every couple of years, usually kind of in sync with, you know, the, the two-year election cycle between midterm and national. Um, and the question is raised, there's a little bit of discussion, kind of that, you know, oh, pat the child on the head, that's so nice, dear, okay, go back and play, kind of approach. At some point, the constituents, you, me, the voters, all of us, Republican, Independent, Democrat, all of us, we need to to put the mechanism try that again we need to put the mechanism in place that makes term limits happen now if that's a uh, an amendment to the constitution then that's what we need to do we need to begin the grassroots campaign uh, to get 34 states or 38 states uh, prepared to ratify the question. We need to bring the appropriate pressure to our national elected leadership to say, we're looking to institute term limits for your office. We have a term limit on the presidency. We need to have term limits on our senators and our congresspeople. Someone spending 46 years as a senator or 48 years as a congressman uh, is... I'm sorry, it's too long. It is too long. The Founding Fathers did not intend senators and congresspeople to be lifetime appointments or lifetime careers. Initially, they were, you come when elected, you serve your term, and then you go back home and resume tending the farm. And somebody else comes in to carry the ball forward. Uh, given what we have seen transpire, again, as I said, over the last 30 to 40 years, uh, clearly this is something we need to take another long, hard look at. And you know, we will 
revisit this subject in, in 2022 here on this show. Uh, but just give me fair warning. It is something that is going to be a subject of conversation on the Fired Up podcast. And with that, we will wrap up our show for this occasion. Thank you for, for listening to the Fired Up podcast. Reminder that you can find them uh, on your you know, preferred choices. They're on iTunes. They're on uh, Spotify. They're on Stitcher. They're on SoundCloud. You can find uh, the WJMS Media family of shows on all of those platforms. I urge you to go and uh, explore not just ours, but the other great shows that come out of WJMS Media. That's going to do it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, I do appreciate it. Please stay safe, get vaccinated, get boosted. Let's get rid of this COVID pandemic once and for all. Hmm? All right, everybody, take care. I will look forward to posting another podcast out in seven days. Be safe.